Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. The lead story today, once again, is the Omicron virus, which is sweeping across Europe and the United States. About 30, about 30 states in this country have now reported incidences of the Omicron virus, which is bad news, because that means we're exiting the stage of contact tracing and entering the stage of community spread. And what does that mean? And more bad news, it turns out that people think that the Omicron virus is perhaps twice, twice as infectious as the Delta virus, which in turn wreaked havoc throughout Europe, Asia, and the world. However, there is a little bit of good news in the silver lining, and we'll talk about that. And that is apparently the virus seems to be less lethal, less disastrous than the Delta variety. Why is that? Some people think it's a fluke of the data. Perhaps it's because there are many people that have been partially vaccinated or fully vaccinated coming down with the virus, and that skews the numbers. Other people are saying that, well, maybe the good news is that the virus is not as dangerous as we previously thought. And some people are saying that this could be a setback for global herd immunity. We used to think that one country can attain herd immunity and that's it. That's the end of the virus. However, now we have to realize that if certain areas like Southern Africa are poor and cannot afford the most advanced vaccine, then that becomes a reservoir, a reservoir of mutations that can ravage the entire world and set back herd immunity. So we'll say a few things about that. Also coming up just on December 22, a $10 billion telescope is going to be launched, the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, the Webb Space Telescope. It's different. First of all, it's about nine times more powerful than previous telescopes. And get this, it is so powerful that it'll be able to, we think, photograph extrasolar planets orbiting other stars. Imagine that, photographing planets beyond the solar system, getting pictures of them, and then wondering one day, will we ever be able to visit these extrasolar planets? And speaking about extrasolar planets, UFOs, flying saucers are in the news again. Yet another sighting has taken place, this time over New Jersey, Photographs on the internet taken by pilots at 39,000 feet. Well, before, of course, people would simply giggle, laugh, and put this in file 13 next to the garbage can. But now people are taking it more seriously. What was it? A weather anomaly? A balloon? A radar echo? Venus? Mercury? Comets? Flares? What was it? Flaring up over New Jersey. Not one, not two, but a field of over nine. Nine very bright objects in formation over New Jersey. So, well, what do people say about that? And why is the reaction different than it, what it used to be? Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. Just when we thought, just when we thought we were beginning to turn the corner, 
just when we thought that maybe the light, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel was coming out, now we're hit with yet another virus, which is perhaps more contagious than the Delta virus, which in turn was more contagious than the Alpha variety. So we're talking about the Omicron virus. It has about 30 new mutations in the spike protein area, and that's what's causing doctors to sweat around the world. You see, the spike protein is like a key. The spike protein is what you see on television when you see the spikes coming out of the virus. These spikes are actually keys, keys that then fit into the locks of your lung cells and open them, and then they're able to inject their deadly uh, genetic material into your cells. And that's how you die. That's how you get killed because of the spike proteins, which can unlock, unlock the gateway into the cell. And the cell in turn overreacts, overreacts and spews out all sorts of chemicals to rein in the virus. And in some sense, that's what actually kills you, the overreaction of your body. Well, so far, about 30 states, about 30 states in the United States have registered the Omicron virus, and that tells us something. We thought we were still in the early stages, the early stage of contact tracing, where you can contact trace each person back to, let's say, Southern Africa, and then you can stop it in its tracks. Well, sorry about that. The horse has left the corral. It turns out that now we're in the area of community tracing, because when we analyze the people who have come down with the Omicron virus in so many states in the United States, we find out that not a lot of them have never been to Southern Africa, which means they were infected by somebody who was infected by somebody who was infected, who then went to perhaps Southern Africa. And so it's far beyond simple contact tracing now. The cat is out of the bag, and that's bad news. Also, it's bad news for attaining herd immunity. It was believed that viruses of the past, like the famous virus of 1350 or 1666, that these viruses are still around. They didn't simply die. So where did they go? Well, first of all, these viruses were so deadly, they knocked off a huge fraction of the human population. Those that were left over were already immunized or had natural antibodies to the virus. And the virus, realizing that it could not be lethal and kill people like that anymore, there were no victims to be killed, basically mutated, mutated to a milder version. So the virus of 1918, the Spanish flu virus that killed more people than World War I, well, that virus, the virus of 1918, one of the greatest killers in the history of the human race, is still around us. Scientists think that it's still around, but it mutated because it reached the point of herd immunity. There was really no one else to infect, so it either disappeared or it had to mutate to a milder form. We were thought that maybe we're headed toward herd immunity in various countries. Various countries are approaching 70, 80 percent vaccination rates. Well, sorry about that. Now we have the fact that in places like South Africa, which is a very low very low vaccination rate, that's where the bulk of the mutations can still emerge. So in other words, we need global herd immunity. National herd immunity simply doesn't work like it did during the Middle Ages. During the Middle Ages, you could pretty much stop 
the virus from expanding because in a certain country, you've, you've basically killed off everyone who is killable. However, now we're in a situation where the, the virus can still mutate in places which cannot afford vaccinations. And so that, in turn, has caused a lot of consternation. It means that we have to pay more attention to areas that are poorly vaccinated. Also, another piece of bad news, it turns out that now scientists can confirm a rumor. And that rumor that's been around for quite a while is that people who are obese are more vulnerable to the coronavirus. Well, now scientists have the data. And yes, it is true. Obese people, no matter what race, no matter what income level, but people who are obese have a greater risk of dying because of the coronavirus. And why? They find a higher concentration of the virus in people that are obese. And so what does that mean? It means that perhaps the virus concentrates in people's fat, and that in turn creates a reservoir, a reservoir for the virus. Well, after all this bad news, what about the good news? Yes, there is some good news there. And that is the virus itself, even though it's perhaps twice as infectious as the other varieties, and will one day perhaps become the dominant virus on the planet Earth, well, the Omicron virus could be less dangerous. So we're still not sure. Maybe it's a fluke of the data. Maybe the data skews in the direction of people who are partially vaccinated, whatever. However, that's a possibility. And so it does mean, it does mean that perhaps the number of people killed by Omicron will not be so severe. Also, it turns out that RNA vaccines, like the one produced by Pfizer and Moderna, are very easy to produce, very rapid, not laborious like growing the virus in eggs. And it turns out that you can roll out a new version of the virus in a matter of a month or so. And so already, already the people at Pfizer and Moderna are hot on the trail of creating a vaccine which can target the Omicron virus. So after everything is said and done, what are the lessons? What should we do given the latest amount of data, which unfortunately also mutates with time as we learn more about the situation? First of all, get vaccinated. Better yet, get a booster. It turns out that if you've been vaccinated twice, the amount of immunity you get to Omicron is only so-so. That's very disappointing. I repeat, with two shots, the immunity that you get from Omicron is not so great. However, the booster shot does make a difference. And so in other words, try to go for three shots. The two shots, let's say the Pfizer variety and the booster shot. And of course, I hate to say it, but yes, you have to keep on wearing masks, you have to wash your hand. And once again, the main danger, the major, main danger from all of this is small aerosols. That's what kills you. And how do you avoid small aerosols? Well, first of all, avoid being indoors as much as possible. Avoid talking to loud people. In fact, for that matter, avoid talking to that many people at all, okay? Especially avoid people who are singing or shouting. And during the Christmas season, just remember that one person, just one person in a choir who's infected, who is singing the great Christmas carols of Christmas, can infect the entire choir. So it is aerosols. 
tiny little droplets, practically microscopic that you can't even see, that is where the virus spreads, mainly. And does it spread to six feet? No. It'll spread past 20 feet, okay? At MIT, they find some of the aerosols going up to almost 30 feet. And so it means that being indoors, being in areas which have low uh, circulation of air, areas where there's lots of talking, lots of shouting, lots of singing, lots of people talking directly to you instead of direct directing the aerosols to somebody else, that's where you have to watch out for the Christmas season. Also, let's say a few things about not inner space, but outer space. On December 22, the United States will send the Webb Space Telescope into outer space, much anticipated. You see, the Hubble Space Telescope, of course, was the workhorse. It gave us gorgeous photographs of the heavens, our own backyard, the Milky Way galaxy, peered into black holes and neutron stars and supernovae. I mean, it was a bonanza, hands down, one of the great instruments of science, which basically changed the way we view the universe. The universe didn't seem so frightening or ugly when we had these spectacular photographs coming from the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, the Hubble Space Telescope is getting old. Plus, it can only see certain frequencies, certain frequencies in the visible range and the ultraviolet range. However, the new, the new satellite, the, the web, can see into the infrared range. And why is that important? Because infrared radiation is heat radiation, it could see things that the Hubble cannot. It can see through a cloud cover, for example, and so it gives us an understanding of what happens in the mechanics of a black hole and what happens when a star explodes. So black holes, neutron stars, dark matter, all the great mysteries of the universe, we hope, we'll get a handle on. Not to mention the fact that the Webb Space Telescope is so powerful, so large, it can detect radiation from tiny planets circulating around other stars. This is amazing. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that in our lifetime we would start to see photographs? Photographs of other worlds. Now, of course, these other world pictures are not going to be spectacular like the Hubble Space Telescope from, of the planet Earth. No, they're going to be small. But still, the very fact that we can photograph planets going around other stars is a shock. A shock realizing that perhaps we're looking at a home, a home where other life forms can survive. And so just the same way the Hubble Space Telescope changed the way we view the world, the Webb Space Telescope will also do the same. And speaking about outer space, Yet another UFO sighting has taken place. Beautiful photographs of it are on the web. Pilots at 39,000 feet took pictures of, well, it looks like a stream of lights in formation. It's not a natural phenomenon because you had about, uh, about nine or so lights in formation. And then they were flying over our backyard in New Jersey. Well, we can rule out what these lights were not. That's the easy part. These lights were not a weather anomaly, because weather anomalies do not go in formation like that, almost like a military formation. Weather balloon? No, we're at 39,000 feet. Plus, we have not one balloon, but up to nine or more 
lights lined up in a row. Could it be a radar echo? Yeah, but a radar echo of what? There was nothing else to be seen. Was it the planet Venus? No, because Venus is very bright, but basically it's just one star. Was it a meteor? No, it was not moving like a streak of light across the sky. Was it a comet? No, it was not, of course, streaking like a comet. And of course, it was not in the vicinity of where comets are to be seen. So what's left? Well, one possibility is it was flares, military flares. However, these flares are not training flares. I mean, I was in the military. I was in the United States Infantry during the height of the Vietnam War. And sometimes, yeah, airplanes would shoot flares and that would guide the troops on the ground. Like, for example, in the middle of the night. But these flares were low, low height. We're not talking about miles above the surface of the Earth. These flares were seen seven miles, seven miles above the surface of the Earth. So what are they? Well, after thinking about all the possible angles, I think perhaps the most feasible angle here is a military flare. That would account for the fact that the flares took place at 39,000 feet, far above the flares necessary to guide our troops. Flares, because flares could be in formation. Okay, in fact, they're gorgeous pictures of these flares, like shaped like a triangle. They really do look like a fleet of flying saucers out of space, but they are military flares. And so how do we resolve this question? Well, one way is to simply ask the military, did you have any flares in the area? Assuming that they were not top secret or anything, the military should own up to the fact that, well, yeah, they were using this for training purposes, experimental purposes. So that is a distinct possibility. But there's a larger implication to this. You see, in the past, when people said they saw some kind of UFO in the sky, the answer would be to giggle and to roll your eyes up into the heavens, shake your head, and you get the giggle factor. Well, <clears throat> not anymore. People are now taking this seriously, including the United States Navy. In the past, when a Navy pilot would see something, they would basically shut up or tell their close friends, but it wouldn't really get out because it could ruin their chances of promotion and it could really jeopardize their career. That was a real consequence. For example, back in 1986 or so, there was the famous JAL sighting over Alaska, very famous. We had a flight by Japanese Airlines pilots, three of them, very seasoned pilots over Alaska, and they saw not one, not two, but three, three gigantic UFOs following them, almost neck and neck, as they went over Alaska. So this is what is called the gold standard of observation, multiple sightings by multiple modes. That's the gold standard. Multiple sightings mean not just one person, but three in this case, three pilots, seasoned pilots saw it. Multiple modes, not just eyesight, but also radar, radar from the airplane, radar from the ground tracked these objects. And then these objects flew away at fantastic velocities. Well, when the pilots landed, they told their superiors about this, and their superiors were not happy at all. Because, of course, they don't want anything to jeopardize their commercial operations. They don't want to frighten people away. And so basically, they gave these pilots desk jobs. In other words, they got demoted. And that became a lesson. 
A lesson is that if you are a pilot and you see something anomalous, then if you tell people about it, well, that's the third rail. The third rail for your career. Your career goes psst and gets electrocuted. And so that was a warning. A warning to people that you tell people about these UFO sightings at your own risk. Well, now, of course, it's the military itself that has owned up to these things. A few months ago, uh, because of pressure from the United States Congress, because certain congressmen stated that we should know if these pose a national threat to the United States. Are they Russian? Are they Chinese? Or what are they? Because of that pressure, they finally opened up some of their archives, specifically 143 incidences of encounters that cannot be explained under any normal circumstance. How do they do it? We don't know. In fact, for the first time, the military finally opened up, quote, they're not ours. You see, before there was always that ambiguity. Maybe, just maybe, there were another stealth bomber being prepared by the military, another stealth bomber that uh, has to be covered up, and it's something that we experiment with because, of course, we pay the army to win wars. We don't pay the military to lose wars. And so we want them to have advanced instruments. But what happens if it bumps up against national security? Well, that's when the military says, okay, okay, let's open up. And the files are very interesting. The files have now begun, gone over frame by frame by scientists, especially at the University of Albany, for example, and the results numerically are amazing. These objects can fly, we now know, between Mach 5 and Mach 20, between five times the speed of sound and 20 times the speed of sound. Not only that, but they zigzag. And the centrifugal forces, when they zigzag, are enormous, hundreds of Gs. If you're inside one of these things when it zigzags, then you are basically crushed. Your bones will be crushed by hundreds of times the force of gravity. Your bones all of a sudden weigh tons. Of course, cannot sustain that kind of pressure, and your bones and organs begin to disintegrate as a consequence. Plus, the accelerations are enormous. They were clocked at dropping 80,000 feet within about one second. 80,000 feet straight down in about one second. Not only that, but we now have evidence that they go underwater. I mean, who would have thought they could actually go underwater? Now we call them USOs, Unidentified Submerged Objects. So, after everything is said and done, what does it mean if we confront objects that can gyrate and accelerate that way? Well, let's compare it with what we have in our weapons arsenal. Our most advanced new weapon is called the hypersonic drone or the hypersonic glide vehicle. They can also go up to Mach 20, and they can also maneuver. In fact, when they maneuver, the whole point is to evade a Star Wars shield. You see, the Russians know they cannot compete with the United States in terms of building a Star Wars-like shield. What they can do, however, is penetrate a United States shield, because it wouldn't cost that much to build weapon systems that can zigzag in the air. And that's exactly what the Russians have done. And that's exactly what the Chinese are working on as well. Not to mention the fact the United States actually canceled its hypersonic drone program about two years ago.
So in other words, there are weapon systems which can maneuver, weapon systems which can reach Mach 20 in the atmosphere. The problem is, however, these objects that we witness gyrate and go underwater and experience stresses on the hull that would rip apart any normal missile. In other words, they probably have a super strong skin, maybe made out of nanotechnology like graphene. Graphene is the strongest substance known to science. However, that technology, nanotechnology, is still maybe 100 years into the future. So in other words, the most advanced weapon systems of the Russians, the Chinese, and the United States don't come close to carrying out the supposed gyrations and maneuvers of these objects that we see in outer space. So in other words, what are they? Well, the short answer is, we don't know. And so, what does it all mean? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. I'm a physicist. We believe in data. The more data we get, the more accurate an assessment that we can make. At the present time, the best we can say is, we don't know. If it's extraterrestrial, it means they're far beyond anything that we can muster with our technology. Our technology, for example, just to go to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, would take 70,000 years riding on a Saturn rocket. 70,000 years just to go to the nearby stars. So how do they do it? Well, either it's all fake or an optical illusion of some sort, mass delusion, who knows, or if it's real, it means that whatever is doing this would have to be hundreds of thousands of years more advanced than us. You see, to break the light barrier, to go faster than the speed of light, you have to have the power of space and time, the Planck energy. The Planck energy is a quadrillion times more powerful than our most powerful machine, the Large Hadron Collider, based outside Geneva, Switzerland. So when could we attain such an advanced technology to bend time into a pretzel, to punch a hole in space, to leap into another dimension? Well, let's be honest. We're talking about a civilization 100,000, a million years more advanced than us capable of reaching the Planck energy. The Planck energy, by the way, is the energy at which we have the instability of space-time, i.e. big bangs, black holes, wormholes, gateways through space and time. We physicists can only dream about these things because that's when the normal laws of physics break down. We have two laws of physics. First, we have the quantum theory, which gives us transistors and lasers and atomic bombs and stars. And then we have general relativity, which gives us black holes and neutron stars and explains the enormous galactic and cosmic events that we see in the universe. To bring these two theories together requires a higher theory because the quantum theory and general relativity, apparently they break down. A new law of physics must emerge. And if you want to read more about this, well, get a copy of my book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And what is everything? Everything means, first of all, the laws of the quantum, which gives us the microscopic world of atoms and chemistry, and then the macroscopic world of black holes and big bangs, and that's relativity. 
and you want to have a theory of everything. Now, I'll be blunt. I get a lot of mail, and quite a few people think that they have the theory of everything. Well, let me be very clear. Let me define the theory of everything. Instead of just talking about it, let us define the theory of everything. It's a theory that at least contains three characteristics. One, it contains all of Einstein's theory, so it would have to explain big bangs and black holes. Second, it would include the standard model of particles, so it would have to explain the electron, proton, neutron, lasers, and so on and so forth. And third, it would have to be a finite theory, well-behaved, anomaly-free. That's it. That's it. You have a theory that satisfies those three criteria, and then you can write me and claim that you deserve to have a Nobel Prize and to be declared the next Einstein. That's it. Just three criteria. Now, many people have written me to say that, well, aren't there rivals to string theory? For example, loop quantum gravity? Well, first of all, I respect people who work on other different theories, but even the proponents of loop quantum gravity admit that it cannot be a theory of everything because it has no electrons, no protons, no quarks, no particles. It's a theory of pure space, pure gravity. And so that has to be ruled out because, as I said, one of the criteria of a theory of everything is that it contains the standard model of particles. It contains electrons and protons and neutrons and quarks, the whole particle zoo. And so, well, what's left? What's left to explain the theory of everything if you don't like string theory? Well, the answer is, that's it. That's it, folks. In other words, string theory has no rival. Now, that doesn't mean it's correct. Maybe we're simply not clever enough. All I'm saying is that so far, it is the only game in town. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Stay tuned for the second part when we bring on Carl Zimmer, author of an exciting book called Evolution. So we're going to talk about not outer space, but inner space, the inner space of life on Earth and evolution with Carl Zimmer. to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. And if you want to know more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it's about what I do for a living. I'm a physicist, and I publish papers in something called string theory, which we think, but cannot yet prove, that it is the theory of everything. 
is a theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life, a theory which summarizes all the laws of the universe in an equation perhaps no more than one inch long. Well, in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about not outer space, but inner space. We're going to talk about life. Where did life begin? How did it get started? What does evolution mean? Well, with us today is Carl Zimmer, who frequently writes for the New York Times, and he's the author of a book called Evolution. And so once again, in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on our special guest, Carl Zimmer, a biologist writing for the New York Times, author of the book Evolution. Carl Sagan had a book uh, years ago talking about the brain. And, uh, well, maybe you can comment on this. He had a, a theory that there are three layers to the brain. The back of the brain he called the reptilian brain because the brain, in some sense, is a museum of all the early stages of our evolution. And we originally came from the reptiles. So at the very base of the brain is a very simple reptilian brain. Then he said the center of the brain uh, is the, the limbic system, the emotional brain, the, the monkey brain, the social uh, brain. And then the front part of our brain is what really makes reasoning and abstract thought possible, and that's the cerebral cortex, and that, that's what makes us human. Uh, has this uh, held up? Uh, that book by Carl Sagan was several, quite a few years ago. Has that pretty much held up that the, the human brain, in some sense, has an evolutionary heritage from the animal kingdom? Um, the, in the basic outlines, yes. Um, this uh, three-part theory of the brain came up in the 1950s. It was originally proposed by uh, Dr. Paul McLean. Um, and uh, neurologists now look at it as a little too sim simple a version of what was happening. Um, uh, you know, there's not one distinct reptile part of our brain, but certainly um, you can see the evolutionary heritage uh, of our past in the in our brains and particularly in the way our brains develop i mean for example the first vertebrates uh were basically looked like sort of sardines without a head they just had a little spinal cord with a a slightly swollen tip at the end but you can actually look at the genes that are expressed as that tip of the spinal cord starts to form in these funny little fish and you see that actually they're the same genes that uh, help to structure our own brain, and they play a lot of the same roles. So you can see uh, a 500 million year history of our brains in the way that our brains develop and the similarities between our brains and the brains of other animals. Okay. Well, you have an article in the latest issue of Discover magazine called Where Are We Going? Why Are Our Brains So Big? Who was the first human? Why do we walk upright? And other great mysteries of human evolution. So let's start the story about six to seven million years ago in Africa, when many scientists think that we first began to split off from the chimpanzees and the apes. So tell us a little bit about the evidence for what happened in Africa six to seven million years ago, and why did we split off? There are two primary kinds of evidence that you can look at. Uh, one is fossils. And uh, if you look for fossils of hominids, that is, um, apes that are more closely related to us than to other uh, living apes, um, you, if you go back, you can find, you can find hominids all, all over the old world going back about a million years. And then further back, it gets a little harder to find, a little harder. 
Uh, before about a million and a half years, they're all in Africa. And then the oldest one that's been found is somewhere between six and seven million years old. Uh, that was found in the Sahara, and it's called Sahel Anthropus. And it was actually just announced last year. So it's quite a tremendous discovery uh, and, and really a very important one. Uh, so you have that as, as our oldest evidence of hominid evolution uh, going on in Africa. But you can also look at another kind of evidence. You can look at the evidence in our own DNA. You can compare our DNA to the DNA of other apes. So our closest living relatives are uh, chimpanzees and bonobos, which look like chimpanzees, um, but they're actually a different species. Anyway, they're basically sort of our first cousins. And if you compare our DNA to theirs, it's astonishingly similar. Uh, if you look at the parts of the human genome where uh, there's a code for proteins, uh, the difference is very hard to find between them, as different as we may look on the outside. In fact, they are uh, about 99.4% identical. So obviously we're very closely related to chimpanzees. Um, and so uh, you can then look at those differences to try to figure out how it is that we split off and what makes us uniquely human. Um, and you can then look at the DNA of people in Africa and people in Asia, people in Europe, and you can see that the root of the family tree, of the human family tree, is in Africa. So we all came out of Africa. And I understand that DNA is also a clock, that we know more or less the rate at which mutations build up within DNA. And given that rate, uh, we could then calculate when we split off from different other species of life on the Earth. Uh, could you elaborate? Sure. Yeah. Over time, uh, a species genome picks up little mutations, and, and a lot of those mutations actually don't uh, bring much harm or much benefit. They just kind of pile up in the background. Uh, and so they seem to pile up at a pretty steady rate. Uh, it depend The rate may change from species to species, but there are ways of figuring out what that rate is. So um, if you then look at uh, human DNA and chimpanzee chimpanzee DNA and gorilla DNA and orangutan DNA, and then kind of line it all up and, and calculate the clock, you can uh, get an estimate of how long ago the ancestors of, say, chimpanzees and humans diverged. Um, and this is really just starting to come together now, these, these molecular clock estimates, because um, you need a lot, of, a lot of data. You need to look at a lot of gene sequences. And so... There are, um, for example, uh, you know, recent, uh, recent estimates that um, humans and chimpanzees, their ancestors diverged, say, about 5 million years ago, plus or minus a million years. So that still overlaps with what the fossil evidence says. Um, and, and it also uh, helps to show just how closely related uh, humans and chimpanzees are. Okay, now one of the big questions, why did we separate off from the chimpanzee line or the common line? What benefit did, did it give us? And so tell us a little bit about what happened when we first began to diverge from our cousins. Right, well, this is sort of the, the mystery of mysteries. This is the, the, the question that everybody wants an answer to, uh, scientists included. And it's hard to really get a good answer for it when um, you don't have 
as much evidence as you'd like to work with. I mean, this fossil I told you about, Sahelanthropus, incredibly important fossil. But when you look at it, really, it it's basically consists of some fragments of the skull and, and a few bones from the rest of the skeleton, and that's about it. Um, you know, we, we, you need so much more information to really get uh, re- good answers to that. But, you know, you can, make, you can make some hypotheses, and then you can test them in the future. Um, so, you know, there used to be this thought that, well, you know, since we're humans and we're so wonderful and so special and so unique that there must have been some incredibly profound reason that we diverged from other apes, which were, must be, of course, be very stupid and inferior. Um, so uh, people would look for, for reasons that would be sort of sufficient. Um, so, for example, there was an idea that um, the, the jungles, began to dry up in East Africa, and then you had the savanna, and so that our ancestors sort of strode out into the savanna, um, became bipedal, could walk on two legs, and therefore became totally different from other chimpanzees, uh, other apes, I should say. Um, the problem is that uh, the earliest hominids didn't live in savannas, that they lived in woodlands, uh, either uh dense woodlands or light woodlands, but in any case, not these savannas. So that whole kind of theory falls apart. Um, you know, the, the, there may have been uh, other reasons that we began to diverge. Um, you know, we didn't live in dense jungles anymore, so, you know, maybe we uh, needed to sort of walk from tree to tree and pull down fruits that were hanging uh, from those trees, or maybe just to stand up in a tree to pick fruit. Uh, it's not a very heroic kind of scenario, but, you know, huge changes in evolution are often based on these tiny little shifts in diet or other ways of getting a living. Okay, so now we begin to walk on two feet for whatever reason, and that, of course, freed up our hand. So tell us a little bit about our hand and our thumb. Why do we have thumbs anyway, and what are thumbs good for? Well, um, you know, obviously uh, other apes have thumbs, and uh, but they they look a lot different than ours. I mean, we can, you know, you can touch touch your fingertips with your thumbs, which uh, gives you a huge amount of dexterity. You can do all sorts of things with your with your hands thanks to the way that your thumbs are arranged. There there must be some connection between the changes that happened in the human hand and. Um, things that you would use that kind of a hand for, most importantly, making tools. Uh, so the question then becomes, well, um, what is the history of tools? And that's a, another pretty murky question. The oldest evidence of uh, hominid tools is 2.6 million years old. Uh, these are stone tools. When they say tools, I don't mean a power saw or something. I just mean basically a chipped stone that you could use to, like, break open a bone and get the marrow out or butcher a carcass to get some meat off that you couldn't get with your with your fingers or your mouth. Now, before that, there could have been other tools that just weren't preserved in the fossil record. Uh, and an important thing that scientists now recognize is that chimpanzees and other apes are not dumb, and, and this extends to using tools. So, for example, chimpanzees can make all sorts of tools. They can make sandals out of leaves. They can make little hats. They can fish termites out of nests. They can they can do all sorts of things. They can even use um, stone tools, although they can't use them. They can't manufacture them the way we can. So there might have been a long sort of prehistory of tool making that we only start to see about 2.6 million years ago. 
And now let's, of course, talk about the brain. Uh, it used to be thought that uh, because we're smart, then we use tools. But if the human brain developed relatively late on this scale, then perhaps it was the other way around. Uh, perhaps tools helped to make us in the sense that uh, those chimpanzees or ape-like uh, animals that could use tools had a, had a better survival uh, advantage over those cousins that did not have the ability to use tools. So tell us now a little bit about when did the brain start to get larger? And the big question is, what are your thoughts about why? Well, um, talking about the brain, people often think that all that happened in human evolution is that it got big, like there, you know, you stuck an air pump in the skull and just pumped it up, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, certainly, the human brain is enormous. Um, you know, mammals generally kind of follow a general pattern of, of the relationship of their brain size to their body size. Uh, we humans don't fit into that pattern. Um, our brains are about seven times too big for our body size if we were a normal mammal. So clearly we have big brains, but we also have brains that are different in other ways. I mean, they're, they have a different kind of organization. So some regions of the brain in humans are bigger than in chimpanzees. Some are smaller. There's a different kind of wiring that goes on. Uh, we're only just starting to figure out what those differences are. So a big important question is, well, um, was there uh, some sort of reorganization going on in a small hominid brain before it started becoming big, because the brains only start to become big in the fossil record around two million years ago. So this is uh, well over half a million years after we start seeing the first stone tools. So, you know, what was going on before then, it's hard to say. Now, there are um, a lot of different theories uh, that you know, some of your uh, listeners may remember from your previous shows um, that people have put forward about why brains got big. One is sort of the peacock theory, that it's a kind of way of, of attracting mates in the same way that a peacock uses its tail to attract female uh, peacocks. Uh, there's another idea that, um, that uh, sort of, it's called Machiavellian intelligence, named after Machiavelli, in the sense that uh, our ancestors were just trying to figure out what everybody else was thinking and trying to manipulate them for their own ends. Uh, there are other ideas about, for example, parasites. Uh, lots of different uh, theories. Um, I think that one of the most interesting ways of thinking about it is to think about sort of think about kind of the home life of a hominid two million years ago. Um, you know, they, they by then you're, you're starting to get much more towards the sort of savanna uh, kind of existence, and uh, you've got these bands of hominids moving around together. And now they've got they've got tools, and they can get different kinds of things with their tools. They can get they can dig up roots, for example, which have uh, tubers that have lots of of energy in them. They can get at lots of food stuff. Um, but uh, you know, you you need to be an adult to get that stuff. Uh, and what you can do then do is bring it home and feed your kids. So now your kids aren't having to go scrounge for food themselves. They can get this wonderful amount of food from uh, from their parents. This provides an opportunity for the evolution of bigger brains because the more energy can be sort of dedicated to growing these big brains uh, than to just kind of you know getting getting out of, getting out of, out of uh, the, the family and looking for food yourself. 
So I'm I I I kind of like to look at the kind of the kitchen side of the equation. Okay, well let's let uh, let's talk about some more theories. Uh, there are a whole bunch of theories about why we became intelligent. Uh, when we look at cheetahs and antelopes, uh, we find that they are delicately crafted to to excel at high accelerations uh, very quickly. And uh, so why is it that the cheetah and uh, certain antelopes are such finely crafted, uh, aerodynamically stable uh, animals? And, well, we realize there's an arms race, an arms race going on between predators and prey. So perhaps there was an arms race uh, among humans. But, of course, humans aren't competing against anyone. Uh, There are no more Neanderthals out there. So who are we competing against? Uh, Perhaps we're competing against ourselves other tribes, uh, other groups of humans, and uh, therefore there was a selection pressure because we competed against other humans. Uh, What are your thoughts? This is a really interesting area of research that's going on right now, and it's fascinating to watch it develop. Um, It it pulls in a lot of elements from psychology, uh, even from economics. Uh, There there are all sorts of ways of understanding uh, this process. And a lot of people think this may be really a key to understanding this, this transition in human evolution in the sense that um, you do have these different groups. You have bands that were roaming around, maybe 100, 150 strong, uh, that um, would be competing uh, for resources with other bands. <clears throat> you see this going on with chimp- chimpanzees today. Well, they will uh, wage little battles with each other. Um, for you know the, the good fruit trees, for example. So uh, the question then becomes: Well, um, <clears throat> how? What what makes for a good group? Um, what what makes for a group that's going to be able to uh, hold together? That's going to be able to um, uh, compete against these other groups? And so you know I'll, what that may involve may be a sort of a, really good social intelligence. In other words, being able to work cooperatively, being able to, to uh, understand what other people are thinking in order to work together to hunt, for example, or to fight off an intruder, for example. So uh, you could be getting this kind of group selection, as it's called, where, where certain groups are favored over other kinds of groups. And that, in turn, would influence uh, who gets to reproduce and who doesn't. And that would actually influence the shape of our brain. And, you know, built into this is something else really interesting. It's morality. Um, you know, if you look at apes, um, they do have sort of basic moral systems. They have a sense of fairness, and they, they, uh, they punish each other for breaking certain social rules. Um, it could be that our much more elaborate sense of morality emerged as these groups were competing with each other. So morality would keep, a uh, moral system would keep a group cohesive, even as people are kind of competing with each other for mates and so on. It would keep, keep these groups from falling apart. Okay, and yet there's another theory, sort of a spinoff of the peacock theory. If you take a look at humans, we are much more intelligent than necessary. We don't have to understand calculus, and we don't understand how to, we don't have to go to the moon. All we have to do is survive in the forest. And if you take a look at peacocks, of course, uh, peacocks' feathers are totally unnecessary. So it is the female, uh, the female that chooses uh, males who are extra healthy, who can afford to have these feathers. And so this other theory says that it is the woman, the female, who decides that she wants to have a smart man. Uh, 
Now, if you take a look at dating habits, uh, most women say that, yeah, they want a man who is, who's smart. Who wants to date a man who's not so smart? They could be taken advantage of. And if you take a look at high school, uh, a lot of the women there seem to prefer the quarterback over the halfback. So it's not necessarily the muscles. It's the, the smarts, uh, the social smarts um, that are important uh, in that game. Well, that's a theory. What are your thoughts? Um, it, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting theory because sexual selection <clears throat> is very important in the animal world. I mean, that's, that's what does give us the peacock tail. It's what gives us the, the rooster's comb. It gives us all these sorts of extravagant displays. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a little skeptical uh, about the theory just because um, there's, there's not, there haven't been that many sort of uh, rigorous tests of it. I mean, and you can, and you can think of some, some uh, counterexamples that would have to be addressed. I mean, it's true that, um, it's tr- true that some girls might like to take the quarterback as opposed to the rest of the football team. But the, fo- the rest of the football team probably does pretty well in terms of getting dates. And, you know, if it's intelligence that we're talking about, then, you know, why is it that the uh, that guy in the computer lab isn't getting any dates at all? Um, you know, it's 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 an interesting idea, but I'm waiting to see sort of how it emerges. Okay. Now, when I was watching the movie uh, The X-Men the other day, uh, it was mentioned that uh, Homo sapiens coexisted with the Neanderthals, and that recent DNA evidence showed that we actually inter uh, we we mated with the Neanderthals. However, I think that the DNA evidence seems to indicate the opposite. So, tell us a little bit about the Neanderthals and the fact that we coexisted with them, and that DNA, in fact, has been extracted from the Neanderthals. Um, Neanderthals, as far as uh, paleontologists can. Uh, determine uh, probably descend from a common species uh, that uh, they, I'm sorry, let me say it again. Uh, Neanderthals, as far as we can tell, descend from a common ancestor that lived um, somewhere between half a million and a million years ago. Um, now, our ancestors <clears throat> remained in Africa. Uh, the Neanderthals uh, and their ancestors moved out of Africa and into the Near East and into Europe. And they um, survived there for what looks to be several hundred thousand years. Uh, They had brains as big as ours or bigger. They were incredibly strong and rugged. They were master hunters. Uh, They don't seem to have displayed the kind of creativity that uh, our ancestors did. Um, they seem to be pretty much set in their ways in terms of how they made tools and um, how they hunted and so on. But that worked pretty well. I mean, they survived ice ages that would have killed most of us. But um, the question then is, well, what happened to Neanderthals? It used to be thought that Neanderthals just became modern Europeans, that it was just a process of evolution uh, that steadily uh, uh, led from Neanderthals to Europeans. That's not looking to be the case now. Now it looks like that Neanderthals went, became extinct, uh, that um, Africans came out of, of Africa maybe, say, um, 50,000 years ago, 50 to 70,000 years ago, and started replacing <coughs> the species that they encountered, like Neanderthals. Uh, now, there's been a lot of uh, talk about, well, maybe Neanderthals were able to interbreed with, uh, with our ancestors with what are called modern humans. And, you know, this pops up in things like uh, X-Men, for example. Well, 
you can actually look at Neanderthal DNA uh, if you find a particularly well-preserved uh, skull or other fossil of Neanderthals. And scientists have actually found four different samples of Neanderthal DNA, and they've been able to compare the genes there with the genes of modern humans. And it turns out, if you look at the sort of family tree you can draw with that information, the Neanderthals are all going off on their own branch. They're not more closely related to Europeans uh, than they are to Asians, for example. So it really does look like they're off on their own. Now, if you look at the bones of Neanderthals and the bones of some of the earliest Europeans, <coughs> excuse me, you do see some uh, evidence that maybe there was some some interbreeding. Um, sometimes you see a uh, modern human that has a really kind of rugged-looking jaw. Uh, there was one that was just recently reported that's 37,000 years ago, uh, 37,000 years old uh, in Romania, and it has a kind of a Neanderthal look to it, even though it's clearly a modern human. So maybe there was a little interbreeding going on. But if there was... Uh, that didn't uh, mean that uh, that there was that much going on, as the gene suggests. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Carl Zimmer, writer for the New York Times, author of the book Evolution. And you've been listening to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. Find out more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Good day. <music>